Welcome to Regulate and Rewire, an anxiety and depression podcast where we discuss the things I wish someone would have taught me earlier in my healing journey. I'm your host, Amanda Armstrong, and I'll be sharing my steps, my missteps, client experiences, and tangible research-based tools to help you regulate your nervous system, rewire your mind, and reclaim your life. Thanks for being here. Now let's dive in. Welcome back. Today, I want to share with you 10 ways, 10 ways to stop a panic attack. And as I do, I am also going to share the nerdy science behind why they work, because some of these tools may seem a little bit funky or unusual at first. And I love helping you to understand the science as buy-in to get you to not just hear about these tools, but to actually try them out in your real life. And before I laundry list a bunch of tools to you, I want to start by answering three questions. Number one, what is a panic attack? Number two, why do they happen? And number three, what you are all probably here for is what can I do about it? And then with the context of answering those three questions, I will jump into the 10 tools, the 10 ways to stop a panic attack. I'll also put a plug in here that I think it's one thing to just hear about a tool and I'm going to do my very best to give as much description so you can understand what it is that I'm explaining and trying to get you to do. I also think it can be really, really powerful to see these tools demoed, to be able to hit play and do it alongside me. So with this podcast, I've decided to create a place inside my Rise membership where I will have all 10 of these tools listed out with a description and a guided video. So if that feels like a helpful resource, we would love to have you join us in that space. If for whatever reason, my Rise membership isn't a good fit for you, I'll also likely over time post demos of these different tools as reels on my Instagram. So that's another place that you can get a lot of accessory resources for the podcast, totally cost-free. So let's jump into answering Those three questions, starting with what is a panic attack? Now, I will preface this by saying that oftentimes there is some differentiation between what we call a panic attack versus an anxiety attack. And that differentiation is usually that a panic attack is something that maybe comes on really suddenly and an anxiety attack is something that gradually builds. But for the sake of this conversation, we may use these terms pretty interchangeably because what we are talking about is this tipping point when the anxiety turns into panic. So whether we got there seemingly suddenly or it built over time, we still get to this place where there is often this intense fear there's discomfort and we can see this manifest physically. We can feel it psychologically. It's just a very overwhelming experience. It looks a little bit different for a lot of different people and it can often feel like a life-threatening emergency. I can't even tell you the number of clients that we have worked with that we do currently work with inside Rises We that have gone to the ER at some point thinking that they were having a heart attack just to be told that it was a panic attack, that it was anxiety. And this is really, really common because heart palpitations and a shift in heart rate is something that commonly happens when we get into this sympathetic activated state. And many, many people that we have worked with have spent hundreds, even thousands of dollars 
on EKGs, multiple ER visits, just to continue to be told that they're fine, that it's just anxiety. And as frustrating as that has been for them to hear, most of the time, it's the truth. And what I find really frustrating in each of their experiences is that for most of them, at no point did any of those doctors or any of those specialists take the extra few minutes to talk them through why anxiety could cause this, to help them better understand their physiology, to give them more context for their experience. And so this is context that I want to help you get in today's conversation, really understanding these symptoms through a nervous system lens. Now, if you have been listening for a while to the podcast for a while now, you have some basic context and understanding for anxiety through a nervous system lens. Now, if this, so I am going to talk today as assuming that you have that context If this is by chance your first, second, maybe third episode that you've turned into, first of all, welcome. I am so happy that you're here. And if at any point today you feel a little bit confused by terminology that I use, I want you to make a priority after listening to this episode to go back to the beginning and listen to episodes one through six. I often refer to those as the foundation episodes. That will help you understand anxiety and depression through a nervous system lens. It will get you onboarded with a lot of the language that I use, activation, shutdown, red zone, yellow zone. And that will help you get caught up and give you context for understanding panic attacks in this way as well. So that is kind of what is a panic attack. It is when the stress load on your nervous system has reached a tipping point. And I think by answering question number two, which is why do they happen? It'll reinforce the answer to kind of what are they? Now, a few months ago, I had the incredible privilege of being in a small group conversation with Dr. Stephen Porges. So for those of you who don't know, he is the founder of the polyvagal theory himself, And that is a theory that informs a lot of the work that I do in the way that I serve clients. And I had the opportunity to ask him a question and I asked him about this very thing. I said something like, I would love to hear your explanation of what a panic attack is through this nervous system lens. Help me understand how you would explain the physiology of a panic attack. And then I had kind of a follow-up. I know I'm not going to get a lot of FaceTime with this man, so I was going <laughs> to squeeze as much out of asking him this question as possible. So I said, okay, and part two is that when working with people who struggle with panic attacks, I would love your thoughts on how to help balance their need or desire to, number one, prevent them, number two, stop them immediately when they are happening or as fast as possible, and number three, how to help their nervous systems reset more quickly. So there were kind of four parts to this question. Explain to me, in your words, a panic attack through this nervous system lens, the physiology of panic, and then any thoughts you have on preventing them, stopping them when they do happen, and resetting from them more quickly. Because I know that I have clients who when they have done a lot of nervous system regulation work, they are able to usually prevent panic attacks from happening, but when they can't, 
they can reset their system almost completely within an hour or two. And we have other clients where it takes days or even a week to really feel reset after a panic attack. So the first thing he said, which I love, he goes, let's just throw out the word anxiety. Let's get rid of it altogether. And instead say, my physiology is under a state of threat. So what he's saying there is forget the term anxiety and what we call anxiety. What if we just understood that to be my physiology is under a state of threat. And then he continued, and if it's under a state of threat and I push it too much, it goes over the edge and that's a panic attack. So understanding anxiety to be physiology that's under a state of threat and a panic attack is simply when we push it over the edge. When we start structuring it this way, we start to realize that the the threshold of getting triggered into a panic attack is actually measurable or it's at least observable in yourself or in other people. If you have ever been with someone as they're having a panic attack, you can see it. Their face kind of goes blank. Their body stops moving. It really tenses. Oftentimes their eyes will go upward. They'll either get really still or they will start darting around. Their breath changes. This person in a lot of ways feels kind of gone, out of body. And it is so important, I think, to note here, and I think I've probably already said this, that panic attacks look very different person to person. And I know that I've personally had panic attacks that on the outside, you would not know that that's what was, that's what I was experiencing. So I know what my panic attacks look like. And I've shared with you at least two specific examples here on the podcast of where I've had or gotten really close to having one. I think what I can remember is the post office story and another was uh, the pizza restaurant in Puerto Rico. So fun. And I've learned what they can look like for some of our clients. It is your job to learn what they look and feel like for you. Or if you're a parent, maybe what they look or feel like for your kids. That's a really important piece of this is to become aware of your physiology. And you can do this proactively. And I actually invite you to do this proactively first. So find yourself in a moment of regulation. And maybe that's now. So if you are somebody who struggles with panic attacks, can you reflect now or again at another point when you're feeling more regulated, just proactively when you're not in a moment of high anxiety, can you reflect on how they usually feel for you? Can you build some awareness, some familiarity around that? What are some of the symptoms? Symptoms that happen in your mind, symptoms that happen in your body, what happens first, then what happens, then what happens? Because there is always some physiological signs that you are headed into that yellow zone, that sympathetic activated state. There are always signs that your threat response is building. Can you become more aware of those? And then the second part of this is that once you are aware of your physiology, are there tools that you can use to cap that cascade of sympathetic mobilization? Can you recognize the things that contribute to intensifying it versus the things or the tools that can help to settle it? Some of those I hope to provide you here in today's conversation. So summarizing the second question of why do they happen, 
Panic attacks happen when the threat load on your nervous system has reached a tipping point. And sometimes that tipping point comes because of a predictable trigger. It makes sense. You know why and you know what puts you over the edge. But sometimes they feel like they come out of nowhere. And when it is that they came out of nowhere, it's likely that you were already almost at threshold. If you want to bring the stress bucket analogy to mind, you were just a couple drops from your bucket overflowing. And when it feels like we have a panic attack out of nowhere, there was something. You may never be able to pinpoint it. That's okay. But just the context of knowing there was something, some stressor that your nervous system registered that put you over the edge. Those some things can come from inside. Internal stressors could be not having enough nourishment. It could be from eating some food that was funky. It could be coming from the thoughts in your mind. Anything inside that added stress, it doesn't need to be anything specific, but if you were already right at threshold, it's just the tipping point. It could come from outside. Maybe it was sensory overwhelm. Maybe you're at a grocery store and all of a sudden there's a smell and a bright light and a lot of talking. It could come relationally. All of a sudden you just, there's something about this relationship that feels familiar to a time in your past. And so just knowing that if it feels like it came out of nowhere, there was likely already a high stress load on your system and just something, anything got you to that tipping point. And this is why so much of the work that we do with clients emphasizes helping them to decrease their chronic stress load over time. That is a critical part of long-term anxiety and depression management because if you have baseline stressors, things that you wake up with, things like your lifestyle habits, uh, stored trauma, whatever it is, if that almost fills your bucket, well, then you have very little room for daily stressors. And daily stressors are always going to come. Or maybe your baseline stressors are at a manageable level, but your daily stressors are just way too high every single day. We've got to find a way to decrease the chronic everyday stress load on your system to a point where you have the capacity for life to just throw things at you sometimes without putting you at that tipping point. So coming to the third question of what can I do about it? And so like I mentioned in that question to Dr. Porges, that included the three three primary ways that we approach working with clients through panic attacks. Number one, prevention. Number two, settling it in the moment. And number three is helping to reset their system after it happened. And today's tools are mostly about that middle step, helping to settle or stop panic attacks in the moment. But to answer this question of what can I do about it, I think it comes down to these four things. Number one is to have context around what panic attacks really are and why they happen. And so you can check some of that off, hopefully, with this conversation. Number two is to learn and to recognize your signals that could be worked up into a panic attack. When we work on clients through this process. It's called nervous system mapping. That's something that I've also talked about previously on the podcast. So that's just becoming aware of how activation, how this yellow zone shows up in your system. Number three is 
to have go-to tools in your toolbox for capping that activated physiology spiral, 10 of which I'm about to offer you. Again, knowing that the goal is not for you to add all 10 of these to your toolbox, but to experiment and to play with them enough to figure out just two or three maybe that have the highest payoff at interrupting that anxiety spiral and allowing your system to settle, to find some safety, to bring you below threshold. And number four is knowing what you need to help your system more fully reset and to settle. And that I think could be a whole other podcast, a whole other conversation on its own is, okay, I've had the panic attack. How can I help my system to resettle? And using some of these tools may also be helpful in that settling and reset process. So when we think about those four steps and when we think about kind of those three phases of it, right? Prevention, stopping it from happening and then resetting. Prevention is great. I support clients with that all the time, but also having a toolbox for if or when a panic attack happens actually also decreases the likelihood that it will happen. Because what we see time and time again is that it's that initial awareness of anxiety that gives you more anxiety. It's almost like you, it's the anxiety about your anxiety that creates the panic attack. You feel your system changing, your thoughts start racing, and you have that thought of like, oh my gosh, I don't want to panic. Ah, no. And that thought, that anxiety about your anxiety is often the stress load that takes you to that tipping point, that pushes you over the edge and into an anxiety or panic attack. But what I want to offer you here is that if you know that even if, even if you have that panic attack, you know what to do. You know how to pull yourself out of it. You know how to more quickly recalibrate from it. Then those thoughts aren't as powerful. That anxiety about your anxiety loses some of its oomph. This pre-prepared strategy for if or when a panic attack happens, this is something that we call a regulation game plan, and we help our clients create personalized regulation game plans all the time. But as I introduce these 10 tools, I want to invite you to proactively experiment with them, maybe in moments where you don't have any anxiety at all, just to learn them, to build that neural pathway in your brain to familiarize yourself with these practices. And then in moments of lower levels of stress or anxiety, practice them again. Because if you wait until a moment of panic, until a moment of absolute full-blown highest level anxiety to try one of these, first of all, you probably won't try it. Our system is not willing to do something new when it doesn't feel safe, when it's in that place of life threat. But if you practice these tools, dare I say, even play with these tools proactively, familiarize your system, show your system that they can be effective when you're just stressed or have lower levels of anxiety, the likelihood that you'll have access to one of these panic-stopping tools in the moment you need it most significantly increases. 
Now let's get into it with these 10 tools and some nerdy science about why they work. The idea behind each of these tools is that they are simple and accessible to most people in most places at most times. And these tools will be a mix of things that involve sensory distraction. They will engage certain cranial nerves in a specific way that can elicit a regulation response. They may use your senses to ground or pull you into the present moment in a tangible way and or shift your physiology in very real measurable ways through breath or eye movements. And it feels important that I just put out there As always, this is not therapy, this is not coaching, this is not medical advice. I am not actually suggesting or recommending any of these to you specifically. This is for educational purposes only. You are in charge of your health. So now that that's covered, if you choose to experiment with some of these, remember that different things work for different people. The goal, again, is not to add all of these to your toolkit, but to try to find just the two or three that seem to work well for you, and then rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Make those your go-to practices. Tool number one, color spotting. If I asked you to pick a color, any color, what color would you choose? Okay, that's your color. Let's say you chose orange. Color spotting is where you look around the room or look around the environment that you're in and you try to count or name all of the orange or whatever color of your choosing objects. Why does this work? Because this engages distance or what we call panoramic viewing and that engages our parasympathetic nervous system. Broadening your vision field that way turns on your relaxation response. It's also a form of cognitive distraction. So when you are in this activated sympathetic state, your fight or flight state, your pupils dilate and you become really tunnel visioned. So by looking at things far away from you, scanning your environment, that shifts the way that your your optics are working, your eyes are working in a way that invites some regulation. Number two are near-far jumps. So this engages something called your ocular reflex. And maybe you experiment with this one with me here. Place your thumb in front of your face, I don't know, maybe like six inches, where you're not seeing double, you can focus on your one thumb. Now look beyond your thumb as far as you can. For me, I'm sitting down on the floor recording this podcast, so I can see an outlet on the wall across the room for me. That's about thumb level. And then come back to focus on your thumb. Focus on your thumb. Focus on the thing across the room, far away from you. Thumb, far away. Thumb, far away. So near far jumps, you are shifting the way that your eyes are focusing to something near, to something far. And this switching can activate different areas of your brain potentially moving activity away from regions that are over-engaged during panic attacks, places like your amygdala, which is involved in your fear response, to areas involved in your visual processing and spatial awareness. So near-far jumps can be really helpful. If you're at work and maybe you have a pen on your desk, that can be great, or a highlighter, something bright sometimes can be more helpful. 
holding that thing in front of your face, near, far, near, far. Number three is sour candy. Feeling panic come on? Pop a warhead, sour candy spray in your mouth. This provides a sense of sensory grounding, sensory distraction. It also stimulates your trigeminal nerve. So this is a nerve that's responsible for a lot of the sensations in your face that can be implicated when you are experiencing stress or panic. And stimulating that can potentially have a calming effect. So sour candy can engage a nerve in a way that provides calm. It also can just be an intense sensory distraction. When you are feeling intense, we also often need to meet it with intensity. Number four is to smell something strong. So this is, again, a form of sensory distraction, but it also triggers your olfactory nerve, which is responsible for smell. And your olfactory nerve is directly linked to areas of the brain that process emotion. So stimulating this nerve can influence the emotional response that you are experiencing. Maybe some bonus points when using this tool, if you have a particular smell that's linked to a memory or one that you find neutral or calming. Also, there are certain scents that can elicit particular physiological responses. So something like peppermint or eucalyptus can often produce this physical sensation that's cooling or tingling. And that can be additionally grounding to help shift away from panic symptoms or a more soothing scent lavender or other gentle florals, essential oils can be helpful for this. So number four is to smell something strong. Also that inhale, when you go to smell that nasal inhale may also cue some more regulated breath patterns. Tool number five, holding an ice cube. When we are feeling intense things, sometimes we need to meet it with intense things. Holding an ice cube in your hand after about 30 seconds can get really physically uncomfortable. So this provides, again, sensory distraction. And when you have this intentional control that you are exerting over physical sensation, when you are actively choosing to hold an ice cube, It provides that sense of control over your physical sensations, which can feel really empowering during a panic attack when you usually feel out of control. Um, Maybe some kind of bonus tools here. If you have ice cubes, you can also place it on the side of your neck to maybe stimulate the vagus nerve or put an ice pack on your chest or on your neck. So those are other ways that you can use cold. But the tool I'm offering here is hold an ice cube. This is a great one because you can do it at home, but you can also, for any of you who have social anxiety, who are out to dinner and you start to feel anxiety come on, it's pretty unlikely that somebody's going to notice that you take an ice cube from your drink, hold it under the table, feel that sensation while trying to take a few deep breaths might, might be what you need. Tool number six is to again, engage your hearing. So this is using sense, asking yourself, what is the thing that I can hear that's the closest and what's the thing that I can hear that's the farthest away? So this shifts your focus from internal 
thoughts and physical sensations to things away from you, which can help to redirect attention away from the distress that's happening inside. It also brings you into the present moment and can be a form of sensory grounding. So what can I hear that's the closest? And maybe do this now. What can you hear that's the closest to you? What sound can you hear that's the farthest away? Awesome. Tool number seven is a coping statement. So a lot of these tools have been more body-based. This one is a top-down tool. So having just some cognitive reassurance to maybe layer in with some of the somatic tools, sensory tools, attempt to change your physiology tools. For me, when I was having more regular panic attacks, it was simply, I'm okay. I would just tell myself, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, this will pass. So find a really simple coping mechanism that promotes a sense of control for you, whether that's I'm okay, this will pass, I know what this is, I'm safe. And you might even want to experiment using I'm versus your. So if it doesn't feel genuine, like I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Sometimes my clients have found it more helpful to say like your, it's almost like part of them is talking to another part of them. The regulated part is talking to their really anxious part. You're okay, you know what this is, you're safe. And having a pre-prepared strategy. So having a coping statement ready means that you have pre-prepared for dealing with panic attacks. And that can also provide some context to reduce the anxiety, the intensity, the lack of control in the minute. It's just like, I prepared for this. I have the statement. Um, I'll also offer maybe like (laughs) 7.2. is you can have a poem or a speech memorized to recite during a panic attack. This gives your mind something complex to focus on. It's a form of cognitive distraction. Also, when we recite things, especially out loud, it promotes rhythmic breathing. And so one of the few things that I have memorized is, you know, that a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. I also had this little book of poems as a kid. And the one I remember is patience is a virtue. Virtue is a grace and grace is a little girl who didn't wash her face. And so I could presumably make that my panic poem. And what this does is, yes, it's a form of cognitive distraction, but also saying this aloud and trying to get as many words out as possible before you breathe again can help to create a more rhythmic breathing pattern. So a client tried this and what they noticed, so I'll use the second one, was they could only get through one or two words before they were breathing. And it sounded like they were essentially hyperventilating. So it's like, patience is a virtue and virtue is a grace. And some of you may be uncomfortable even hearing that because that fast-paced breathing is promoting that sympathetic activated response. Doing a poem like this and trying to get out as many words as possible draws out your breath. So patience is a virtue. Virtue is a grace. Breathe in. And grace is a little girl who didn't wash her face. And I might 
repeat this over and over and over again until I can get through almost all of it within one breath. So either having just a coping statement or maybe having just a short poem or speech, maybe you call it your little panic poem, the goal being cognitive distraction, as well as physiologically, you can shift the pace and rate of your breath, which can promote a downregulated nervous system. Tool number eight, cold water. Getting a big old salad bowl. So this one is not necessarily a tool that works for most people in most places, but if you're at home, this could be an option to fill up a big salad bowl with ice water. Or maybe if your partner notices you're having a panic attack and this is helpful for you, maybe they can do that. This, oh, I'll finish explaining what it is and then I'll talk about why it works. And you just take a big breath in and dunk your face in this cold water. You can get a little bit of this also by even just going to the bathroom and splashing cold water on your face. But this elicits something called your mammalian diving reflex. And this is one of the biggest reasons why cold water can be effective. So the mammalian diving reflex, say that 10 times fast, is an automatic response that occurs in mammals when their face is cooled, especially when their face is submerged in cold water. And this reflex slows down the heart rate And it redirects blood flow to vital organs, which helps to counteract the fight or flight response, which is activated during a panic attack. I told you I would give you some of the nerdy science. So dunking your face in cold water or even just splashing cold water on your face. It also can be a form of sensory shock. It can stimulate the vagus nerve, which also plays a key role in our parasympathetic nervous system, which calms down your body's stress response. It also, especially if you're dunking your face, plays a role in breath regulation. So that was number eight. Number nine is to tug on your ears. (sighs) This sounds really silly, but maybe you do this with me right now. Grab the top of your ear and just gently tug and then move to the middle of your ear, work your way down. So these ear tugs stimulate the vagus nerve. So the ears, especially your earlobes, have several vagus nerve endings. And so stimulating these endings by pulling or massaging in or around your ear can activate the vagus nerve, which again is a key part of your parasympathetic nervous system. In fact, such a key part. I wrote a whole book on the vagus nerve. I'm going to put a plug in for that. Pre-order, pre-order my book, please. Um, It comes out in May, but I'll add a link uh, to pre-order that book there. And again, this is one of those tools that you can use almost anywhere, especially if you have longer hair and your hair is down. If you're reaching up and just kind of lightly tugging your ear or even rubbing your neck, the side of your neck is another place the vagus nerve innervates pretty close to the surface. You can do that most places without being noticed. People are like, oh, maybe they've just got a niche. They're They're probably so worried about themselves they're not going to notice. So tugging on your ear or rubbing the side of your neck is tool number nine. And tool number 10, tool number 10 is to hug a safe human. Co-regulation is one of the most effective ways for us to settle our system. If you are fortunate enough to be having a panic attack in the presence of a safe other, 
And hugging physical contact is something that feels safe for you. Allowing them or leaning into or asking for a hug. A hug of at least eight seconds. It releases oxytocin. It reduces cortisol. If they are regulated themselves, you co-regulate to them. Your breath rate matches theirs. Your heart rate can move towards matching theirs. And safe physical touch engages that parasympathetic nervous system. All right, friends, those are your 10 ways to stop a panic attack to experiment with. Like I said, I am going to film a demo video for all 10 of these and put them inside my Rise membership. Would love for you to join us there if you're looking for more personalized support in your healing journey, or if you feel like that would be a helpful resource for you. Now, today's chat boils down to three takeaways. Number one is the context to understand that panic attacks happen when the threat load on your nervous system has reached a tipping point. So even when they feel like they've come out of nowhere, it can be helpful to reframe and understand them to be physiology that is under an overwhelming amount of stress or threat. Number two is an invitation to experiment, to practice. Again, dare I say, to play with some of these tools proactively. Experiment with them in your daily life to simply learn them, to become familiar with how to do them. Experiment with them in moments of low stress or low anxiety so that they're familiar and you have access to them in the moments that you need them most. And one of, that's one of the reasons why a lot of our members love our content library is because in moments they need it most, they can just open the app on their phone and hit play and I'm right there to help guide them through these practices and also give them a little dose of co-regulation and doing it with me. And number three is just a reiteration of how important understanding your physiology is when trying to heal anxiety and depression. It demystifies your symptoms and you come to realize that all of your symptoms make sense. That's the number one thing I hear from podcast listeners is I just listen to what you have to say and it makes sense. It just makes sense to understand anxiety and depression this way. It makes sense to heal it this way. And when it starts to make sense, when you start to understand your physiology, you begin to see that healing and regulation is more possible than you ever thought when you learn to work with this mind-body system. So thanks for being here, friends. I hope you find some of these tools helpful. If you do, I would love, love, love to hear about it. Send me a DM, send me an email, and until next time, sending you so much hope and healing. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Regulate and Rewire podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a five-star review to help us get these powerful tools out to even more people who need them. And if you yourself are looking for more personalized support in applying what you've learned today, consider joining me inside Rise, my monthly mental health membership and nervous system healing space, or apply for our one-on-one anxiety and depression coaching program, Restore. I've shared a link for more information to both in the show notes. Again, thanks so much for being here and I'll see you next time.